when they overran the site, everyone got killed. They decided that they would spare me, although not initially. Initially, they were going to beat me to death, broke my nose, my cheekbone, my eye socket. Captivity was a roller coaster. They moved me three different times. Uh, You know, I was thrown in vehicles. Uh, I was interrogated on camera that, you know, blasted out to 127 countries. And again, without the training, it would have been really difficult to figure out how to navigate all that. But the training, you know, gave me a foundation to work from. Several months ago, my phone started blowing up from friends of mine that lived in the state of Alabama. And they were all asking me the same question. They were saying, hey, Jeff, what can you tell me about Mike Durant? And my answer was, I can tell you 20 years worth of experience with him as a warrior, as a pilot in the greatest aviation unit in history. I just don't know that much about him in his run for the U.S. Senate. Well, today on this episode of Unbeatable, you get a chance to meet Mike Durant, the warrior, the helicopter pilot, but more than anything else, you get a chance to hear who this man is and what he stands for. And if you live in the state of Alabama in just a couple of days, you get a chance to make a decision whether or not you want him to represent you at the U.S. Senate. I'm super excited to introduce you to an old friend of mine, Mike Durant. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Strucker. Mike, I am so glad to be with you on this podcast. Been looking forward to this for some time just to catch back up with you, man. Yeah, Jeff, it's great talking to you too. It's uh, always good to see folks from uh, any point in your career. And, you know, obviously we've got a connection that's pretty uh, significant. So great, great to be on. Yeah. And you're a busy man right now. So I just want to say right up front, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule right in the heart of the Senate race to do this episode with me. Well, you know, it's an opportunity for me also because, you know, the more people we can reach to get to know me, the I think the better my chances are. So I appreciate you. Yeah. So for all of those listeners from around the world who doesn't don't get a chance to vote, uh, text somebody that, you know, who lives in the state of Alabama and tell them about Mike Durant. Okay. So Mike, uh, before we get to your decision to enter into the U S Senate race, let's talk a little bit about why you ended up in the army in a helicopter and, like you said a few moments ago, you and I have a little bit of water under the bridge, but you spent some time as one of the greatest aviators on the planet. And I'm just going to say that because I really mean it, um, serving with the Night Stalkers. So why did you end up in the Army and uh, flying helicopters? Well, first, let me say, you know, nothing means more to me and the, and the folks that are still flying for the 160th than to hear that from our customers, because, you know, it, it's the only place I ever flew in the military where we called the people that we supported our customers. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it says it all, you know I mean? Yep. It's, it's the way we viewed, you know, our role is to make you successful and therefore we called you our customer. So just, you know, very proud of that. But, you know, back to the question, I went on a helicopter flight uh, when I was young. I was probably 14 years old, and uh, you know, I I was a blue collar kid. There wasn't a lot of opportunity in the town that I grew up in. Uh-huh. Most people went and worked in the mill. I mean, that's fine, but you know, it, I I wasn't all that interested in doing that. And then I, I discovered this thing called aviation, and it's uh, after one flight. I mean, it was I just couldn't believe it. I, I thought this you could do this for a job, and yeah, the they're going to pay said, you money to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and he was a, a, a military aviator. He's a helicopter guy in the New Hampshire National Guard. And uh, anyway, that inspired me. So the only way to get there, uh, you know, for somebody like me is to join the military, apply for flight school. I did all that and uh, did well enough where I got Blackhawks right out of school and they were brand new. So yep. not only am I flying, you know, for a living, but I'm flying the latest and greatest helicopter that the the military has. And it was just a you know, almost too good to be true. I'm, I'm, I'm my early twenties at this point. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, to me, I like to talk about that because it just shows how many opportunities there are in this country and how blessed we are, yeah. you know, to be citizens of this nation. And, you know, there's so much criticism and so much negativity, but there's also so much positive. If we could all just focus on that, uh, you know, yeah. from time to time, uh, so then I found out about the 160th that you mentioned earlier after a, a tour in Korea. 
And that intrigued me, you know, just like, you know, flying helicopters did initially. And I applied and I got in, in, uh, uh, the fall of 1988. And, uh, and I'll tell you, it didn't disappoint. It, you know, it lived up to everything I thought it was going to be. Wow. So you showed up to the 160th uh, about the same time that I was arriving in the Ranger Regiment, which means you and I were back and forth in the same theaters of operation for a long time together. Um, we're going to talk a little yes, bit yeah. about uh, yeah. the time that you and I spent in Somalia. But before we get there, there's listeners that are not that familiar with the U.S. military right now. So describe the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment for just a second. Kind of give them the unclassified version of what this uh, unit is and the capabilities, will you? Yeah. So it really all started with the Iranian hostage crisis, uh, which was in the uh, the late 70s. Uh, you know, folks certainly my age will remember it. You know, younger people mm -hmm. might not. But, you know, the uh, the Iranians basically rioted. There's a siege against the, uh, the U.S. Embassy and prisoners were taken. They were held for over 400 days. I don't remember the exact number. 444. And 444? That's the exact number. 444. And... Uh, you know, the U.S. military is kind of caught flat-footed because we really didn't have an on-the-shelf capability to go rescue uh, these people and eventually made an effort. It was catastrophic. Uh, you know, I mean, these things are hard, but there was proof that we were not ready as a nation, and, and that was the birth of the unit. So the purpose of the unit was to be able to respond quickly to uh, high-profile very complex, often long-range operations involving helicopters in, in contested or hostile terrain. I mean, that's basically it. And, and the unit, since its birth, has basically been involved in every yeah, single everything. notable operation involving helicopters, uh, you know, first in, last out, all the time. Yeah. And uh, it was just awesome. Yeah. How long did you spend with the Night Stalkers, the 160th? So the wonderful thing about it is, you know, in my uh, – where I sit in the rank structure, uh, I'm basically a pilot. I mean, a warrant officer, but you know, I always joked with people that there are people in the military who don't know what warrant officers are. So, you know, <laughs> don't right. even try explaining that yeah. to civilians. Right. Essentially you're a pilot for your whole career is the simplest way to think about it. And then we're not just pilots as warrant officers, but you know, for me, I was. And because it takes so long to get people to a level where they can actually be contributing to the mission, we are allowed to stay as long as we want there. So I stayed from 86 to 2001. So I was there 15 years. And there are guys, I mean, I, I don't know the longest tenure, but it's probably easily 25 yeah, years. Yeah. I mean, Carl Meyer comes to mind. He, you know, he didn't retire all that long ago. And he's from about that same time yeah. frame that you and I are. So, you know, you're talking about people that have spent their whole careers in one place. Yeah. And for people that are hearing this for the first time, you, I want them to understand the night stalkers really are on the tip of the spear. So to be able to be that good in that unit for that long, it takes a pretty exceptional pilot. Your first combat experience, was it the invasion of Panama? Were you involved in just, just cause? Yes. And, you know, I, I'd gone to uh, Prime Chance, which was the Persian Gulf uh -huh. prior to that. And, and, you know, we call that a combat tour. But it really wasn't, um, you know, things had settled down by the time I got there. But definitely just cause. I mean, I was there for H hour with the Ranger airborne drop at Rio Hato. Yeah. You weren't on that, were you? I was I was at Howard Air Force, uh, Howard Air, Air Force Base when that was going down. Yep. It was amazing because, you know, it's the first time we used Apaches. It's the first time we used the stealth bomber all at Rio yeah. Hato. Yeah. And it was the largest airborne drop since Vietnam. And, I mean, right, I'm right there underneath it watching all this stuff go on. And it was uh, it was kind of amazing. I, I was flying with Donovan Briley, who ends up being killed in Somalia. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, we were, again, still fairly junior guys. And, and we're on our way thinking it's going to get canceled. It's going to get canceled. Uh -huh. you know, you're always I remember spinning. what it was like. Spinning, yep. Right? Yeah. And then boom, the 2000 pounder goes off and we're like, wow, we're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you may not know this, but I flew down to Panama early and I provided the theater level CSAR for the night of the invasion. So we staged out of Howard Air Force Base and provided CSAR, um, picked up the little bird that went down, picked up the guys that got shot up at the two airfields that um, the task force took down. Um, so that was my real first combat experience too, is Panama and getting shot at on the back of some Blackhawks, 160th Blackhawks, 
um, while I was uh, bouncing all over the country with you. Um, and you were probably looking the same hangar I was yeah. there at, at Howard. Yeah. Uh, I remember you. So you go to Desert Storm next. And I want to tell you, I don't think I've said this to you um, in passing, but when I read your book in the Company of Heroes, I almost fell out of my seat laughing when you described your experience hunting Scud missiles in, Co- or I mean, in Iraq and Kuwait in uh, 1991, especially the conversation between you and your crew chief. So I went over there um, in 91 as well. I went over there with First Ranger Battalion and uh, did this big operation on the border of Kuwait and Iraq. But describe your role in trying to find and blow up the Scud missiles before they launched them into Israel in 1991. Well, I actually want to rewind the clock just a touch. Okay. Because the mission for the unit initially was to rescue the hostages that were being held in Kuwait city. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that, but the embassy personnel were being held Uh in the Hilton hotel there and we were going to start the war. I mean, basically, you know, the, the, the initiation of desert storm was going to be that rescue attempt and cliff Walcott was the lead bird. And I was number two. I didn't know that. Wow. yeah, and we circle back around, obviously, with Somalia. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it finally got canceled because the hostages got released. Yeah. But, I mean, it went right up until we're about to deploy. And, you know, we were going to take really heavy casualties on that. Uh-huh. We, we knew that, and so were the ground forces. I mean, there were things we discovered later after, after we put people on the ground and actually went and looked at the target in Kuwait City. Yeah that things like iron gates within hedgerows. I don't know if you ever heard about any of that, oh, yeah. but you know, that makes uh, breaching a hedgerow a little that harder makes it rough. Yeah. <laughs> than, uh, than just the, the hedges. But uh, anyway, you know, I guess, so I suppose it's good that that mission didn't have to go, but I was always so proud of the fact that not a single person, in spite of the, you know, the, the gloom and doom forecast of what the casualties would be, no one said, Hey, you know, I got, you know, I got family issues I got to take care of or something like that. Everybody committed to it. And I was just very proud of that. But anyway, we, and then we're sitting on the bench because our mission gets yep. canceled. So we were not part of the initial right. kickoff of the storm. And then the Scud missiles start getting drawn into the thing, as you, as you mentioned. And, and the concern was that if Israel was drawn into the fight, that it would fracture the coalition uh-huh. that we had with the, with the Arab countries. You know, the Saudis were involved, the Jordanians. I don't remember all the countries involved, but, you know, it was a it was a coalition force, and that would just complicate it. So with the with the, the ground force elements that we were supporting at the time, we were putting them on the ground. They were doing reconnaissance. Mm-hmm. And then because we had armed the Blackhawks at that point, we actually had a, an opportunity to engage some of these Scud launchers, and uh, it was, uh, you know, one of those moments I'll never forget. Yeah. I mean, coming up over a set of power lines and then diving down, and there it is. I mean, the most sought-after target in the war, and you're lined right up on it. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty amazing. And then the guns didn't work. Yeah, I love this. <laughs> so in your book, I am laughing out loud at this scene in your book. So describe for people that have never read In the Company of Heroes. By the way, you got to go get this book. But tell them about the conversations over the uh, headset, over the intercom at this point. Yeah, so... So when I say the guns didn't work, the miniguns actually worked. And then, then I switched to rockets and I pushed the button and and they didn't work. So came around. And of course, what's the first thing any pilot is going to do with this co-pilot when things aren't working, they're going to blame the co-pilot for screwing something up. And I I was flying with Lance Hill. Lance actually ends up dying in an airplane crash later in his career. Great guy. Miss him like all the others. Um, and uh, I said, Lance, it's one bleep switch. Uh, you know, f- flip All it. All you got to do know, is flip switch. one switch. You got one job, man. <laughs> yes. So I come around again, push the button, still nothing. And at that point, I'm just livid because there's, there's two of us and the other aircraft, you know, is in the pattern with me and they're shooting at this thing. Yeah. And I'm like, it's like having the biggest buck you've ever seen yeah. in your life, you know, and broadside, standing still. And your powder's wet. You know, I mean, it was just so frustrating. And I, I think I made a comment, maybe not on that mission, but it happened again later, 
that I was going to crash the aircraft yeah. into the desert because I was so mad. And I wasn't serious. But, you know, if you're a crew chief in the back, like you were talking about earlier, you're probably, is this guy losing his yeah. mind or what? Like, yeah. hey, boss, uh, you're not the only guy on this aircraft. I just want to remind you before you go yeah. kamikaze with next. Yeah. And it's a long walk. Yeah. Um, you are most well known and rightly so for what you did in Somalia. And by what you did, I don't just mean in the cockpit, but by, by the way that you conducted yourself when you were uh, in enemy hands for 11 days um, in Somalia. So um, this is when you and I first started to get to, to work together pretty closely in Black Hawk Down. Would you describe, you know, kind of what happens from the time that you move into the formation and take up Will Clot's uh, spot to the time that you're shot down? And then uh, if you can, just give us the short version of those 11 days in captivity and tell us what it was like from the firsthand account. Yeah. So, you know, we, this was the seventh mission. Um, and then as you know, where you want me to pick up is when Cliff Walcott gets shot down, we had two birds very in, in very tight with mini guns and snipers that were trying to, you know, basically provide close in fire support for the assault team. And Cliff was shot down. Uh, he was flying with Donovan Bradley. Yeah. I've mentioned both of them already in this discussion. So, you know, it, it underscores the uh, relationships and how strong yeah. they are and how that hole in our hearts will, you know, Dan, Dan Gelada described it that way will never be filled right. because it's, they're like brothers, you know? And anyway, so Cliff and Donovan get shot down and, uh, you know, we're, we're still in this firefight that's going to last for 18 hours. And, uh, the commander, uh, calls on me to replace them. And I'd already dropped 18 Rangers off. I had captain Steele and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the fire support officer, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. Um, Jim Lechner. Jim Lechner. Yep. They were on my bird, uh, along with, you know, 20 others. And we had put them in already. And so we're going to go back in to provide fire support with the miniguns. Unfortunately, you know, as we discovered, and, you know, we should have, we should have been more aware of this, I suppose, if there's one thing that we're, we're guilty of is, uh, not accurately assessing our vulnerability yeah. while, conducting that kind of support. I mean, you know, it goes back to my opening comments about where our dedication to the customers, you can't get so dedicated to the customers that, you know, you sort of throw all caution to the wind right. and you know, whatever it takes. I mean, there's a fine line there, I guess it's very, and it's very subjective, but if, if we had to do that mission over again, I'm, I'm pretty sure we would not utilize the Blackhawks like we did in tight like that because we're so easy to hit. I mean, it's 54 feet foot long aircraft yeah, and we're yeah. not going that fast because we can't, because you can't shoot accurately if you're going 120 speeds, miles an hour. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we're, we're going probably 50 to 60 knots and in this kind of very low orbit around the target. And I mean, we went around two or three times and we got nailed with an RPG and uh, blew the tail rotor off, crashed, isolated, uh, bad injuries for the whole crew. I had a broken back, broken leg, knocked unconscious. Um, and then Randy Sugart and Gary Gordon, as uh, you know, is a, is a story that we can't tell often yeah. enough, yeah. Uh, volunteer to be put in. They make their way to the crash site, get us all out of the bird. Um, and then the six of us, probably just four of us, because the crew chiefs were hurt really bad. Uh, but Ray Frank, my co-pilot, myself, and then Randy and Gary, uh, you know, again, we're vastly outnumbered. We, we held them off for maybe 15 minutes and uh, ran out of ammunition. I ran out twice. And, and then, uh, they overran the site and when they overran the site, everyone got killed. They decided that they would spare me, although not initially, initially they were going to beat yeah. me to death. I mean, broke my nose, my cheekbone, my eye socket. And, uh, you know, I'd been to survival school. I, I, I had the, uh, misfortune of being the first school trained survival school yeah. graduate yeah. to actually use what you learned yeah. in the real world. And I gave them high marks and I did what they taught me to do. And, uh, it worked throughout captivity. You know, yeah. captivity was a roller coaster. Uh, they moved me three different times. Uh, you know, I was thrown in vehicles. Uh, I was interrogated on, on, in front of camera that, you know, bl blasted out to 127 yeah. countries. And again, without the training, it would have been really difficult 
to figure out how to navigate all that. But the training, you know, gave me a foundation to work from, you know, it didn't cover every scenario, but it gives you the, the basically that foundation to, to figure out what's the right thing to do. And, and I'm alive yeah. and, and I did it without, you know, compromising anything. So that's mission success from my, my perspective. Yeah. Um, I want to, there's a couple of things we've talked about already. And then one thing, I don't know that I've ever had a chance to say to you personally, Mike, um, one is that I was the guy leading the rescue effort to try to get to your crash site when our vehicles got shot to pieces already guys are killed around me. And I'm trying to lead a bunch of cooks and clerks out there and get in a big firefight. And I'm making my way back around the city when Gary and Randy go in, um, on foot to you. And, uh, when I left Somalia long after the battle was over with one of my disappointments, I don't call it a regret was never actually making it to the crash site before you guys were overrun. Um, but one of the things I don't think I've ever had a chance to say to you personally is I watched your conduct on the news live in Somalia, like everybody else from our task force, from our units. And I was impressed, man, as a guy like you who went through survival training, I'm watching the way that you're conducting yourself. And man, you impressed. I have the greatest respect for you not just as a pilot, not just as an American warrior, but as a guy who had the weight of your country on your shoulders during those 11 days. And this is my first chance to ever tell you how much I respected the way that you conducted yourself and returned with honor after those 11 days in captivity. Well, that means a lot. Like I said earlier, you know, getting uh, accolades from folks within our own community matters more than anything else. And, you know, I, I just, you know, you'll never know if I'd been in captivity for seven years, what yeah. would have transpired. Right. I, I certainly at the time and for the whole time I was in captivity was absolutely committed to doing what I needed to do to, you know, to uphold my honor and, and, and represent well. And, uh, I'm just glad I didn't have to test it beyond 11 days. Cause you know, and you, you probably saw it in survival school. There's, there's guys that are hard as nails. Yeah. That, That'll break. Go it will take days. you to your breaking point. Yep. Yes. And this is, this is the graduate level course. Yeah. I can assure you that. Yeah. 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 Um, hey, well, I do this little segment. We talked about this right before the episode began. Um, you have done, let's just be honest. You have a couple thousand hours more than I do in a helicopter, but you have been part of the greatest aviation force ever assembled in human history I've had the privilege of being on the back of your aircraft, not yours personally, but in a lot of the Night Stalker aircraft for 23 years. And um, I got this little segment, Mike, that I call the high five. And what I want to do is just bounce back and forth with you for a few minutes, like doing a virtual um, high five all the way across state lines here. I'm in Georgia. You're in Alabama. Um, but I want to talk about some of the craziest stuff you've ever done on the back of, or on a, in a helicopter. I'm going to, I'll share one or two stories of some of the crazy stuff I had a chance to do with night stalkers. All of these stories come with the night stalkers because only the night stalkers are crazy enough to do some of these missions. Um, but I'll tell you, uh, when I was thinking about it, this and preparing for this episode, number one on my list has to be a training mission that we were doing in 29 Palms, California. And the helicopters came in. There were not enough helicopters for all of the Rangers. So when the customers started loading up the back of the aircraft and there wasn't enough room, there was only one or two of us left. And I thought, there's no way they're going to turn another turn. With the winds and the weather being what it is, one or two of us are going to get stuck in the desert. So I just jumped into the helicopter while it was lifting off without even being strapped in. And I literally had a buddy hanging on to my belt the whole way back to the, uh, the whole way back to our, our training area, but they were flying low enough. I still remember this, that my feet hit the vegetation on the desert floor because I was hanging. So I was hanging below the wheels and my feet were hitting the vegetation. And I kept telling my buddy, don't let go. Whatever you do, just don't let go. Because I'm going to hit the ground at 90 knots if you do. That's probably number one on my list of, I don't know if you call it crazy or stupidest things I've ever done on the back of a helicopter. Um, well, we would have gone back to get you. Yes, of course we, you we would have. <laughs> Except for the weather was getting really ugly really fast. And this was one of those, we got to get out of there. We got to get them out now or else it's going to turn bad for a long time out here. Um, 
I also remember lifting off um, when this helicopter lifted off and uh, it was in the middle of the night and I'm just hanging uh, literally by my belt loops as a buddy of mine is holding me. But it, it reminded me of the train up that we were doing in Fort Bliss, Texas, right before we got ready to launch to Somalia. I don't know if you remember this. Um, oh yeah, I was there. Yep. The little birds were flying a bunch of missions, just training missions in uh, Fort Bliss, Texas. And I was on a little bird just flying uh, to the target. And that little bird was flying across the farmer's cattle, fee, uh, cattle fields lower than the cows and the, he was moving so fast that the cows were barely able to get out of the ro- the way I'm sitting on the pods of the little bird as we're flying and I'm looking at the cows eyeball to eyeball as we're <laughs> flying across the desert floor and I was like this guy is crazy I know you got a story or two about this uh you know what it was like in being in the front of those aircraft well you know the, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I, I have this uh, set of stories. You know, people know I got shot down in, in Somalia, but I always tell people that, I, you know, we did a lot of shooting. There was a lot of shooting. Oh, yeah. And in training and, and when we, we had to do it. And I, I tell people that I, I shot myself. I actually shot myself down five times. And cu- a couple of them are a little bit of a stretch. But the first one is pretty hairy. So, again – same characters in the play here. I'm flying with Donovan Briley uh-huh. and we were, we were, you know, the one thing that was awesome about the unit and I hope that hasn't been lost because, you know, when organizations get larger, they tend to get a little bit more structured, which, you know, is necessary, but it's not quite as exciting or dynamic yeah. for yeah. those that are in it. And I came in right sort of right in that sweet spot where there was just a lot of cool stuff going on. So we were able to, to try things and try to prove tactics and equipment. Uh-huh. And I mean, we would literally duct tape stuff onto the aircraft and, and just say, you know, Hey, look, look how good this works. And then we would, you know, do a more formal implementation and to be the operational guy that's actually doing all yeah. that stuff was really cool. So, so we were practicing a, we call a hide site where we put the aircraft in place in the cover of darkness. And then we camouflage it. And then we spend the day sitting there and then, when the darkness comes again, we take the camouflage off and launch. And it basically allows you to, you know, extend where you could otherwise get uh, under the cover of darkness. So we're, we're practicing that and we were going to go into Fort Knox and do a live fire. Uh-huh. So again, this is an armed Blackhawk. So we've got rockets and minigun and I'm going to shoot. I'm in the left seat. We roll in and I start shooting and the minigun rounds are crossing like right in front oh, of the nose. Yes. Cause you got one on each side uh-huh. and, and I let off after just a couple of seconds and back to my point earlier, you got to try to figure out who, who screwed this up. Yeah. So I said, that's the worst boresight job I've ever seen. And Donovan in his typical sort of just, I don't know, deadpan way says, uh, Mike, uh, we got a problem. And he turns on his finger light because we have these, you know, infrared finger mm-hmm. lights and lip lights and all sorts of stuff to be able to see in the blacked out cockpit. And he puts it up to the windshield. The minigun had come off the mount uh, and rotated and fired right through the, through cockpit. the cockpit. This is 2,000 rounds a minute of 7.62 coming through the cockpit. incredible. It, it missed Donovan's knee by like four inches. All the instruments are shot out. The windshield shot out. And luckily, you know, he wasn't flying. I was flying. Yeah. And uh, we put it on the ground, and and everybody was okay. We had to flush the shards of glass out of our face and our eyes. And but it was, you know, that's just an example of, you know, sort of those near misses yeah. that if you do this kind of thing for a career, they're going to happen. Yeah. And probably the most dramatic uh, self shoot down that I, that I ever had. Yeah. Hey. Um- this uh, it, this great story, it reminds me, um, Mike, I did many uh, tours through Panama, um, you know, doing the jungle training back in the day when the special operations forces would all pass through there. I can't, to this day, the most thrilling ride I've ever had on the back of a Black Hawk was in Panama when the Night Stalkers were taking us from one place to another, flying uh, over the terrain. But I still remember flying that helicopter at like record speeds 
through the Chagaris River Basin and banking so hard in one turn, the rotors hit the water while we were still flying through the Chagaris River, getting ready to pop up and put us in on a target. And I was thinking to myself, this guy is inches away from putting this aircraft into the river right now. But only a Night Stalker could fly an aircraft like that and kind of thread a needle for uh, several minutes through the river basin in Panama. Um, we, uh, we, we tended to operate on the edge. That's yeah. for sure. And, uh, you know, you don't, and it's, it's not just cowboying. I mean, it's, it's, you know, w- with a lot of experience and understanding that, that there's a tactical need to do some of this stuff. Um, uh, you know, I don't want people to think we're just out there, you know, putting, putting lives at risk for no reason. Sure. I mean, there's, there's a reason for it. Yeah. And I told some of my guys that were in my unit at the time that were new to the unit and new to the Night Stalkers, that it is virtually impossible to see this aircraft moving at that speeds that low until it pops up and gets ready to put us in. Yeah, it's a pretty thrilling ride in the back. In fact, almost everybody around me was throwing up, but it's it uh, it basically makes you almost impossible to hit until you have to pop up and start putting the customers in. Right. I was on the back of a 47. I still remember this one. Uh, We were doing halo operations and I convinced the pilot. Now, of course, nobody can nobody knows this um, on the back of the 47, but I convinced the pilot to take us up to 11,500 feet and then bring the aircraft to a hover over the land, over the drop zone. But no one in the back knew that the aircraft was going to hover. They kind of thought they were expecting a forward throw. And one of the funniest moments of my life was sending all of these free fall jumpers out of the back of a helicopter that's hovering and they start swimming through the air like they just fell off of the sky or the the diving board trying to wait to the body hit terminal velocity. And their eyes were as big as saucers because they had this uh, feeling like they just left the the diving board waiting for the water or waiting to hit the water. It was so much fun. But without a yeah, doubt, yeah, because you had the rotor wash in that yeah, case. That's, that's right. That yeah. Normally get, yeah. yeah, without a doubt, one of my most memorable moments is I was on a support by fire position as a machine gun squad leader, and we were calling the aircraft in, and they were coming in hot over our heads with a lot of ammo, really low, and one of them just kind of hovered and was hammering a target right in front of us with the mini guns. But you already know. He's right on top of our head. And as you just described, 2,000 rounds of hot brass raining down my the back of my neck for several, what felt like several minutes while he's hammering away at this target. And I can't get away from it. So I'm just getting covered in this blazing hot brass casings as he's just deluging us with um, with brass or with uh, round casings when he's over our head. Some of those moments I'll never forget for the rest of my life, man. Yep. That's an awesome capability. And, yeah. you know, we don't, we, we didn't mention the little bird guys too much uh, so far you did riding on board, but uh, you know, in terms of aircraft that, that is as maneuverable as any and can get into tight spaces that none other can get into those guys were, uh, I'm not going to say they were better than us, but they were pretty darn good. Yeah, because no pilot's going to say that out loud, right? (laughs) Never. Yeah. Well, for people, and I'll just kind of, we'll move on after this, but I just want people to hear that are listening to this around the country, around the world, that don't really understand the U.S. military's capabilities. One of the, the things that sets the U.S. military apart, literally from every other force in the world, are the Night Stalkers, who they are and what they can do. I have said this for 30 years. No one on the planet can do with a helicopter, no matter what helicopter system it is. No one can do what the Night Stalkers can do. And as a guy who's been on your aircraft, uh, the aircraft of Night Stalkers for a long time, man, I just want to say thanks for the incredible um, flying that you gave the customers in the back. Well, like I said, you you guys are the reason we exist. So nothing matters more than to get that kind of feedback. And we appreciate it. Um, Mike, after Somalia, well, I want to just recognize one of the reasons why you were able to survive those days of captivity is, of course, uh, efforts by the International Red Cross. But I also want to recognize Farimbi. So can you just mention very briefly his role in helping keep you alive? Yeah, so Farimbi was, I call him the head guard. He was assigned by Adid. Adid was the number one guy that we were after. 
uh, you know, we were after 50 people. Adid was the mm-hmm. head of the Habergetter clan, and he was he was the number one guy. Uh, and uh, for MB, I, I don't know where he fell in the in the structure. I'm not sure. You know what? I don't think I ever even went back to see if he was on the list of 50. He may have been, but anyway, he he was charged with protecting me, and uh, you know, initially he was very hostile as one might expect. I mean, this thing was an 18 hour firefight where people are dying on both sides. So it's going to be hostile, but over time, and you know, I think some of it was what I learned in school. Some of it is just who I am. You know, I, my, my family, you know, likes to laugh and, you know, uses humor as a, as a Mm -hmm. stress mechanism, you know, which a lot of people do. That's not, not all that unique, but so there's just something about that rapport that built, you know, I mean, in survival school, you know, not getting into the, the technicalities, but, you know, they basically are teaching you, we want you to survive. We don't want you to die. So don't do anything stupid that you might see in a, you know, a fictitious war movie that's going to cause you to lose your life for nothing. Right. So, you know, I applied all those things and, you know, eventually they, they started to like me, I guess. And uh, for MB. When, I, I mean, he went above and beyond. After I got released, I wrote him a letter back, and I just said, "Hey, look, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I would have done what you did." I yeah. mean, he, you know, that I had some. Uh, what's a what's a politically correct way to say this? I mean, uh, oh, you can gastrointestinal problems. Yeah. You can just say it. Yeah, yeah, and it was quite the the mess. And uh, I mean, he cleaned me up. I mean, it was like, wow, you know, a week ago we were. We're trying each other. to kill each other. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I really think he wanted to see me survive. We had a few conversations. I mean, nothing in depth, you know, but, you know, I, I learned a few things from him. He had, I think he said he had nine wives. He had, you know, scores of children. And, um, you know, he, in the end, I would say, I thought he was a decent person, a decent yeah. human, you know, I mean, he really was. And, uh, you know, I have no idea, you know, where life took him. I'm sure he's not living anymore, but, uh, cause he was a bit older than I was, but, uh, and I really appreciated what he did. Yeah. And, uh, I always thought that if a rescue attempt had occurred, which is really the, the strategy behind right. this is that he probably would not, at least not without hesitation right. and pulled the trigger. Yeah. And that's, you know, what you're trying to give us a few more seconds. Yeah. Well, I bring up for because for people that are very familiar with you from black Hawk down, the movie is showing actors who are playing parts, but I need people to understand even in the war itself, those are real guys with real families and real lives, both sides of the equation. You know that I know that, but I want to make sure that people who just watched the movie, but have never experienced combat understand you and Ferimbi are a great example of real men with real, uh, you know, values and, and, and real hopes and expectations who are enemies until he ends up taking care of you and really helping to keep you alive until, uh, you know, you're handed off back to the U.S. forces. I'll never forget lining up that airfield and providing a human corridor while we put you on the aircraft and sent you out to uh, Germany and back to the States to get some care and never even forget singing God bless America as they were closing up the ramp and flying you out of there, man. A a very emotional moment. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Mark Bergamo. He's one of the four uh, litter bearers and he just passed away uh, recently uh, out of a due to health issue. But uh, you know, again, just it's, it's the people, you know, like I'm sure you would, you would say exactly the same thing. It's the people. Yeah. And uh, a lot, a lot of great friends and honored to have known all of them. Yeah. I, I, I'd love to have more time because I, I really want people to understand about the Pinnacle Solutions uh, Corporation that you started and how well you have led that for a long time. But we're, instead of doing that, I want to fast forward a little bit. So we are right now in the throes of a uh, race for the U.S. Senate in the state of Alabama. And uh, in fact, next week is primary week. Your name is on the docket. And I want people to understand why you would leave a very successful business. You're not really leaving it, but why would why you would divert your attention from a very successful business and make a run for the U.S. Senate? I mean, what was the motivation that moved you in this direction, Mike? 
Um, well, I was gonna I was gonna uh, leave Pinnacle anyway. I'd always said when my youngest uh, was uh, graduating high school, which he he his graduation ceremony is the same night as the primary. By the way, wow! So. Look at that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess big that's efficient. Big night family. for the Durant family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, I would say the turning point was Afghanistan. You know, uh, I didn't serve in Afghanistan, but we, you know, my company had some people uh-huh. there. And I just couldn't believe what our political leadership allowed to occur in Afghanistan after 20 years of effort. And I, you know, I just sort of had a little bit of a, I'd call this close to, I would get to a a run in with somebody last week uh, about Afghanistan and, you know, people who don't really understand uh, feel like it was uh, a military failure. And, And I said to him, what exactly did our military fail to do? I mean, you know, the Taliban needed to be pushed to the, mm-hmm. to the nether regions and we did it. Uh, Osama bin Laden need to be held accountable and we did it. We needed to provide security for the Afghan people and we did it. You know, we needed to begin training them to get their economy and, and infrastructure back underway and we did it. And it was all in progress and it all got thrown away. Yeah. And, you know, people get upset about the equipment. I'm not going to say I don't care about the equipment. But that's not what people should be upset right, about. People right. should be upset about the thousands of Americans who died there for that mission that was simply thrown away. I mean, uh, it was a, it was a 9-11 moment for me. I mean, yeah. it really was. I mean, it, I, I just can't believe it. And then, you know, as a business owner, the vaccine mandates and how that all got mismanaged. You know, at one point I thought I was going to lose 10% of my workforce. It just, you know, somebody with real world experience has got to get up there and try to be a voice of reason because that's what's missing. you got people who have been their whole lives in politics and not been in the military or not run a business. And I've done both. And and I want to bring that experience to to represent the state of Alabama. Yeah, I have had uh, my dozens, scores of people who are friends of mine who live in the state of Alabama who have all asked me questions about you. And I'm like, I can tell you right now about the quality of the man that he is. I can tell you about the kind of warrior that he is. If you're asking me very specific questions about his platform, I don't know because I don't live in Alabama, but I can tell you about the warrior and the integrity that he has and the quality of the man that he is. And one of the reasons we're doing this episode today, May 19th, is because next week a whole lot of people from the state of Alabama are going to go to the polls and they're going to decide whether or not I want Mike Durant to, to represent me in the U.S. Senate. And I just want to give you, like, I'm going to put the ball on the tee here and let you just hit it. I want you to tell them what it is that you stand for when when you represent them in the U.S. Senate. Well, I'm absolutely a conservative. And, you know, it always amazed me. There are people who are not conservatives who serve in the military. But to me, I, you know, the culture is one that is much better suited for someone who is a conservative. I mean, uh, sure. I don't... I, it just there were times when people told me that they were Democrats, and it just sort of shocked me because I, just to me everything about the units that I was in screamed the opposite. So I, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. But I'm a lifelong conservative, and you know, obviously, you know, pro Second Amendment, pro life. Mm-hmm. I mean, my wife and I have raised six children. We have four grandchildren. That's another thing I can't understand. I cannot understand how people think it is okay to kill an unborn child. I just, I I cannot get my head around that. And, and under the guise of, you know, it's, it's their body. Well, it's not their body. It's, it's a living child, you know, that, well, living is not the right word, but it's, it's an unborn child. And, you know, so, you know, Again, those are some very significant issues for I think all Americans, but particularly here in, in in Alabama. But in terms of my my big three, we got to build the wall, and and there's many reasons that we have to do that. One, for the first time last year, we had over 100,000 overdose deaths in this country, and a lot of that is fentanyl, and a uh-huh. lot of that is coming through the border. Uh-huh. We've got criminals, terrorists. I mean, there's no accountability. It's wide open. And it ta- it costs taxpayers, now this is nationwide, 
over a hundred billion dollars a year with a B, not an M, a hundred billion with a B. And that's because, you know, they're, some of them are getting benefits. They're not paying taxes in most cases, and we shoulder that burden. So, you know, those are just, you know, some of the major reasons why the wall is so important. And, uh, you know, it isn't about stopping immigration. The country was built on immigration. Right, absolutely. It's stopping illegal immigration, right? Uh, second thing is, is stopping things like the COVID mandate from occurring because, I, as a business owner, understand the impact of that. I understand that I can't just go to the unemployment office and replace a critical resource I have supporting mm-hmm. the U.S. government. As you know, the key uh, descriptor or the, the key thing we're shooting for in the military is readiness. And, you know, contractors, defense contractors are critical in sustaining that. And, you know, you're potentially going to put uh, legislation in place for me to have to terminate 10% of the people that are in my workforce. And that's not even talking about the active duty people. I just had a father this weekend come up to me and say, his son's in the air force. He doesn't want the shot. They're going to force him out. It was his lifelong dream to serve the nation. I mean, it's just wrong. So, you know, those things, you know, by the time I'm in office, hopefully COVID will be behind us, but you still need people who understand the, the implications of these decisions when we make them. Uh, and, and push us in the right direction. And then the third thing is advocating for strong defense. I mean, you know, you can't turn it on and turn it off is, is what I, I try to make people understand, whether it's development of a weapon system or training readiness, it, it, you, it's got to be steady and it's got to be yeah. available all the time. You know, yeah. going all the way back to the Iranian hostage crisis, the reason that happened is we didn't have a ready, right. able force to prosecute that mission. We cannot compromise on that. And for us here in Alabama, it's it's a bigger issue because we have almost 400,000 veterans. I don't know if uh, uh, it's one of the highest per capita, if not the wow. highest per capita yeah. in the nation. Yeah. And we have huge uh, aerospace and defense uh-huh. industry here from Mobile to Fort Rucker to Montgomery to Redstone Arsenal and everywhere in between. There's a lot of aerospace and defense. So it has an economic effect on the state of Alabama as well as our security effect on the nation itself. So, you know, that's why, you know, as a former military person, you know, really, really stressing the need for sustaining a capable military. Yeah. Well, Mike, um, I have said now for about 12 or 15 years to the warriors of America who have fought multiple combat tours, especially in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, hey, when I, I've, I've looked him in the eyes and said, hey, when you guys and gals get out of the military, I want to plead with you to run for uh, a political office. Start locally, move to the, uh, you know, your state and then to the federal government, because you have demonstrated to the entire world how you're willing to shoulder the load and have how you're willing to suffer and to sacrifice for the good of the country. Whereas a lot of leaders at the local state and especially at the national level have yet to give anything. They've just uh, been taking um, some of those public public servants for a long time. And Mike, there's no question you're a guy who has demonstrated for decades your commitment to the country long before you decided to put your bid in for the race so or for the U.S. Senate. So next week... Um, um, during the primaries for all of you from Alabama, you have just heard Mike's big three and you've heard why you should vote for him. And I'm just going to challenge you get up, go to the polls and vote. And if you're not sure yet who to vote for, I hope you are now, now that you've heard from Mike, um, I want to give you a chance, uh, the, the, the last couple of minutes before we wrap up, um, anything else you really want to, um, uh, touch base on before, because this thing is, uh, the, the primaries happen in just a couple of days. So anything else you really want to communicate before, uh, we wrap this episode up? Well, you know, I guess the first thing is it's an honor just to be able to run. You know, I mentioned earlier in the podcast how, you know, what a great country this is and the opportunity, you know, for a kid like me, blue collar family, I left, I literally left home with $70 and I, the government might've even given me that to go to basic train. I don't even remember. Yeah. Right. But I, I mean, I had nothing, you know, and, and to think that, you know, the opportunities have presented themselves and, you know, uh, okay, I worked hard. I made a few good decisions, but to me, it just speaks to this nation yeah. and just the greatness of it. 
to be able to just even say that I'm running for a position like this is, is a great honor for me. And if, if I am to win, which I feel confident I'm going to, uh, you know, it will be, I'm not going to say it'll be, it'll surpass serving the nation as a night stalker, but it'll, it'll It'll be be right right up there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, and uh, I can't say enough about, uh, again, how much I appreciate the people that yeah. helped me along the way because none of us get any of this done, uh, you know, without the, the Lord's intervention and and a lot of help from our friends and and family. And I appreciate that very much. Totally agree. Hey, I want to say this as we get ready to close out, Mike. My greatest honor in life um, is being able to be in the military with some of the greatest men and women who have ever stepped foot on the planet. And I consider you one of them. So while I'm doing this broadcast, I keep thinking to myself, I get a chance to interview somebody who was one of my heroes. I'm in the company of my heroes. I'm quoting from your book title right now, just doing this interview with you today, man. Thank you for carving the time out to do this. It's been a pleasure. It's always great to talk to you. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Sounds great. We'll see you around. Hey, Mike has gone through one of the most difficult experiences any warrior will ever go through, spending 11 days in captivity. He's a guy who did it with honor, demonstrating that he is unbeatable even when he's shot down and taken into enemy hands. I hope you've been as fired up during this episode as I was listening to Mike tell some incredible stories about flying for the greatest helicopter unit ever assembled on planet Earth. And if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, I want to invite you to kind of follow us on social media. You can search for us by just going to at Unbeatable Podcast. We're pretty much on all of the prominent social media channels. But maybe you've listened to an episode or two and you really like what you're hearing. If that's the case, why don't you rate us on your favorite podcast platform and tell everybody how awesome this episode was. And hey, if you live in the state of Alabama, I want to wrap this episode up by challenging you to get up next week, go to the polls, and to exercise your constitutional right to cast a vote. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Unbeatable. See you next week.